Hey, I'm Danny Mazer, and you are listening to the Soul Stories podcast, an extension of Soul Stories. At Soul Stories, we create spaces for risk-taking, vulnerability, and critical thought. On this season of the podcast, we speak to change makers about their personal journeys and how they are making an impact in their communities. Hannah is a writer and advocate for mental health awareness and sexual assault prevention. She comes from a journalistic background and seeks the nuance and difficult social conversations. Since this conversation took place, Hannah and I hosted Unpacked, a creative dialogue on consent, which was an extremely impactful evening that you can learn more about in the interview. She details some problematic occurrences in her life that I encourage you to listen to and absorb. Also, just a quick note. Due to some technical difficulties, the quality in this conversation improves around the 22nd minute. Thank you for your patience. Oh, man. All right. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Danny. Welcome to the Soul Stories podcast. Yes, I'm very excited to be here. Um, How are you doing right now? Um, I'm good. I'm actually like I'm in this weird mix of like anxiety and excitement over our event in April, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Yeah. um, Yeah. A lot of like creativity, but lots of like self-imposed deadlines. And um, I need to do this or it's not going to be as good as it could be kind of feelings. But yeah. But um, it's motivating, if nothing else. So The deadline anxiety. Yeah, right, exactly. Cool. Well, you know, the first question I like to ask is, what are you creating in the world? Mm, I have a really hard time giving succinct answers. Um, but I've been doing a lot of writing. And then um, I've been kind of focused on figuring out ways to be active in um, advocacy towards mental health awareness and um, sexual assault prevention. What does that look like? With writing, it's been a very, like, inwardly focused. You know, I've been... We were talking about tough transitions earlier. I've been through a few of those myself Yeah. in the last few years. And so it's been a lot of, like, tearing down things and rebuilding things, like, from within, if that makes sense. Like, a lot of I statements in what I write. But I'm starting to want to turn outward again. Like I said, we've been planning an event for April called Unpacked. And, yeah. Um, Tell us about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's uh, a storytelling and kind of performative dialogue interactive event where we'll be taking stories revolving around this idea of consent and furthering the conversation there. And aside from the stories that we have and the poems that we have, I'm really excited about everybody that's involved. It's, it's like, as much as I have struggled with the lineup like it's been really awesome to see who has been able to come and see what they offer yeah but uh, another part i'm excited about is the interaction and and hopefully having a dialogue after so i want to take all the pieces and put them in a print book and i want to get people in the audience to like sign a pledge saying that they will uh, talk to their family members or write a letter to the editor about the topic just like in some way further the conversation in their personal lives. Yeah. And then I want to see if anybody will, is willing to come talk to me within the few months after the event about the conversations they've had. So yeah, that's a big jumble of basically saying that I'm trying to figure out ways to further a discussion because I think there's a lot of funds being raised. There's a lot of, you know, demonstrations and all that's important. But when it comes to like on a person to person level, I feel like that's where a lot of work still needs to be done. Yeah, where do you think the conversation's at right now? 
for consent. Yeah. I think it's at a very weird, precarious point, right? Like, it's it's hard to talk about sexual violence prevention without talking about Me Too, which on its surface is, is a great, powerful movement. But it's also been largely driven by, like, Hollywood and the entertainment industry. So people who have relatively more privilege than the society as a whole yeah. are leading these conversations and um was it asia argento that had like that weird like she was one of the main kind of people in the beginning speaking out against harvey weinstein i, I don't know her name i forget but there was an actress maybe it's not asian asia argento but and then she got in trouble for having an inappropriate sexual relationship with a teenager that um, you know and it's just yeah. like you see what i mean it's like so right. i think there's a lot of like conflicting ideas of power and imbalance and i think you know there's this you know whole like conversation with men uh going well uh, you're the, the open mic, the joke that uh, that one guy did about like, you know, oh, well, now I suspect that you're guilty. Like, you don't go, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to have to, like, kill this guy now. Like, or what if I get in trouble for murder? And it's like, well, who did you murder then? You know? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and so you're like, worried about it. Right. Yeah. There's like, more of a chance he did it. Right. Right. Like, oh, I don't want to get in trouble for touching somebody inappropriately, like in the workplace. It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't touch people inappropriately <laughs> in the workplace. Right. You're giving yourself up right now. Yeah. So there's that whole conversation, right, with men that are afraid of being characterized as something that they don't want to be characterized as, which is a predator or someone who takes advantage of women or someone that abuses their power. Mm-hmm. And then you have complicated people with a lot of money and fame leading these conversations. Whereas the original movement was started by an actual activist who's worked in sexual violence prevention, Tarana Burke. So like the origins of the movement is is fantastic. And I think anytime these conversations reach like cultural saturation, then that's when you start seeing the messiness of being human creeping into so that long-winded answer is basically to say that I think uh, the conversation around consent is at a point where people are paying attention and listening to survivors and people like me and like most women that I know and a lot of men that I know that have suffered or have their boundaries crossed in a really in a really bad way are able to feel heard but you you always like the pendulum swing is always a dangerous thing right yeah and i feel like it's good that a lot of activists in the space are very self-aware and i i know a lot of i just joined sicasa uh last year uh, so sicasa is the colorado coalition against sexual assault and if i haven't been able to participate as much as i'd like to but i'm slowly kind of getting exposure to all these really powerful women that have been in this fight for a long time you know like yeah. uh, a lot of their members are members of other organizations they have like a military member who's focused on sexual assault prevention in the military like they have mm. just a lot of really they have a lot of people i would love to have more conversations with and i think that those are the kind of people that are probably going to be the level heads and the leaders in the conversation moving forward i don't think it's sustainable to have hollywood continue to lead that conversation right yeah, so w- what is the what is the issue with having Hollywood lead this conversation right now? Or entertainers or people in positions of power that are far away from the ground floor? I think that's a complicated answer just because they are people and they have valid opinions. I'm not someone who's of the mind that, you know, do 
play your parts on TV and sit down and shut up. Like, or I'm not like sit down, Colin Kaepernick, and play football. I'm right. not. You I, throw a ball. You can't talk. Right. I don't yeah. believe that. I fully believe that famous people are in a unique position to move conversations forward. I just don't think that they should be. Um, I don't think that they should be leading the conversation. I think uh, the Harvey Weinstein story was, is that how you say his name? Harvey Weinstein? Steinstein, I don't Weinstein? know. That sounds terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds creepier. We should call him Harvey Weinstein just because it, it sounds worse. So he, yeah, the, the rhyming adds something to right, that. Right, right. It's a creep factor that I can't really elaborate on. I just think that there's a lot of issues with having famous people, entertainers, actors, celebrities lead this conversation. They have different sets of priorities. They have their careers are based on exposure and attention. And there's always the risk yeah. that folding in act this kind of activism into their personality complicates the message. I also think that we think of celebrities in a way that isn't as nuanced or complex as we think of other humans in our lives. They can be very two-dimensional to our faraway eyes, right? It's like, oh, um, what do you know about Angelina Jolie? She was assaulted by Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> she, oh, I didn't know Angelina Jolie was Yeah, there. she was part of that whole story. Oh, wow. A lot of famous actresses, Gwen Paltrow, um, yeah. A lot of famous people whose name you would immediately know yeah. were his victims. And I think that's powerful to know just to show how very far power can reach. People who you think would be protected. Right. And it's like stories about people in newsrooms, people, Matt Lauer, you know, uh, yeah. just people that are at that far at the top of their industry are taking advantage of other people at that level in the industry. And I think it's powerful to know that, to know that it, there's not a lot of protection just based on who you are. It's There's predators in every pond. But again, the other part of that idea is that there are predators in every pond. They're in our neighborhoods, they're in our schools, they're following me home at night from a bar. You know, there's so many other places. There are more subtle violations that aren't, you know, violent rapes in an alley or even uh, a date rape that that's particularly traumatic there are you know people grabbing people in bars or grocery stores or um and i say grocery stores because that's happened to me before like i've been touched inappropriately in the most innocuous places jesus yeah like and, the most well-lit type public <laughs> environment right um yeah. And I've even been having these conversations with my mom and just how normal she thought it was to be like roped by male acquaintances. And those are the conversations that we thought that. Yeah. Yeah. And she, it's been interesting and I don't, I don't want to get too far into this, but we basically just been having conversations because this is her story to tell, but the general point of it is one way that Hollywood leading this conversation for the initial stage has been good is that it's allowed these other conversations to kind of start coming up. I've been able to talk to my mom about things that have happened with her that she has been able to look back on and say, no, that was abuse or no, that was wrong. That was a violation. Whereas before it was just accepted as part of being a woman. We can relabel these things. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And those are the conversations I'm interested in right now. There will always be a place to talk about sexual violence at its most egregious. And I think we should always make room for those conversations. But we need to make room for people that aren't, that don't have a lot of social currency 
you know, and we need to make space for these more nuanced violations, unwanted kisses, unwanted back rubs, unwanted proximity, even a man standing too close to me in a line or one of our performers, Becca Hannigan, is going to tell a story in April about things that weren't outright assault. It's, it's, I want to let her, but it's like, you know, the feeling of, yeah, yeah. The feeling of saying no, but still enjoying what's happening or uh, a man she dated trying to force a kiss on her is those are the kind of conversations. Violations. Yeah, they're violations. And I feel like in the past it's, it's been easy for people to go, you're fine. You're here. You didn't get hurt. Get over it. Right. And I don't, that doesn't help, you know, like, cause there's a, there's a, um, a spectrum with everything in life, a continuum of how intense something can be. And I think that we need to look at the whole spectrum to have a full understanding of, well, I don't know. How do people talk about this? Like, how do we fix this problem? And, and, you know, they, people like to talk about it as if it's a, we get rid of the predators and, you know, <laughs> yeah. we, we arrest pedophiles. And so the children don't we get take hurt. take them out of jobs. Right. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Instead of just being like, well, why aren't we reframing the conversation about how we teach consent to children so that they don't grow up thinking they're entitled to something? Or how do we have conversations with people that typically have power over others? And this can be women too. I've, I've seen women in positions of power abuse it as well. And I think that that is more the issue. How do we get a more egalitarian society? How do we get people in power to respect it yeah. and use it to build up instead of you know, personal like satisfaction? Of, yeah, I, I think it's it's interesting you bring that up. And oh, on the podcast we just recorded, I can make some connections. But it's it seems easier for people to say sexual assault and predators are the other yeah it's it's not within me you know me as a white man like i lead soul stories i'm conscious i have no issues i have no like there's no patriarchy racism or anything within me Mm -hmm. that's that person and so i imagine it's easier to do that logical let's cut people out of society than let's look at ourselves and recognize the fucked up parts within ourselves and how do we get rid of Mm -hmm. that? Which is probably why people don't want to have the conversation. Right. Nobody wants to talk about what's wrong with them. (laughs) No, No, who does? But that's actually what I've been talking about a lot lately. It's like, I'm a little fucked up. Let me tell you why. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think it's difficult to self-examine. I think that that's part of the reason it's been hard to talk about race in our country because people don't want to, they're just like, it's better now, so stop complaining instead of yeah. doing the hard work of examining why certain groups feel the way that they do or why even if someone isn't as oppressed as they were <laughs> two or three decades ago, that they still want things to be better. Like I, right, yeah. I, I think that that same idea applies to women who have also, in a lot of contexts, been... I uh, I always am hesitant to use the word oppressed because I think people kind of get a little eye rolly when they hear that. But but in, they have not been as much in power as um, white men. Right. But that's also not to say that white men can't be victims because power is a very complicated thing in society. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's interesting because I think there are two schools. I think there are many schools of thought, but I, it reminded me of a family member talking to me the other day and being like, well, yeah, now that now the, your generation uh, doesn't see color. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? What do you mean by that? Like, it, you know, it was in the 60s. It was a lot different, you know. And I recognized that it was more fucked up for a lot of minority populations back then. But mm-hmm. people use that as a scapegoat to avoid the continued growth. Right. You know, and my response to it was like, so you're telling me right now, like, there, there's an end. There's an end goal, you know, versus the it's a constant process. Right. Um, like uh, fundraising. Have you ever seen like what people will draw a thermometer when they're yeah. fundraising and yeah, they yeah. slowly like penny drive? Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's the image that pops into my head when I hear things like that. Like, oh, we we're pretty much to the top of the thermometer now, so you know we don't want to. It's fine where it is. Let's yeah. leave it be. We don't need it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're past it. Right, and I've been doing a little bit of reading lately about. Oh, because we were talking about Jesse Smollett earlier. Yeah. And, uh, oh, I was reading um, an interesting... I wish I could remember his name because I don't read The Atlantic as regularly as I'd like to, but he was basically talking about, you know, victimhood chic and how how Jesse Smollett was kind of indicative of a, a point in our society where people like to wear victimhood like a like a costume. Mm-hmm. It, 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 in some circles, victimhood can ironically bestow social clout. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I I can kind of see maybe where that kind of story would give your family member a reason to say, see, the thermometer is full. Oh, yeah. And, no, that and, same family member just told me that's why we need due process and we can't trust what people are saying, which was a direct hit at the Me Too movement. Yeah, and... I, like, felt it in their voice. Yeah, but the thing is about Me Too is, because I have a a background in journalism, and the reason I am so enamored with the journalists involved in this is they have developed a process that really is just, like, will be the gold standard in this kind of reporting if it's not already, you know, looking for, like, diary entries to kind of corroborate details of a story or talking to, you know, a friend that was uh, a confidant at that time of an attack, right? Does does that make sense? So like if someone's saying, I was attacked by this person at this time in my life, these are the people I told, these are the feelings I had, and the way they back that up is by looking for diary entries, kind of documenting details that are dated. Or, oh, you talk to friends, how long after the attack? Can you give us their names and numbers? Would they be willing to talk to us? And and so I just... And the, the Washington Post, back when the whole... Okay, so I am lived in Alabama for a time, and the whole Roy Moore thing is just so traumatic to me. But, yeah, I bet. But during that point, the, did you hear about the story with the Washington Post? There was this woman that tried to claim a false story about Roy Moore assaulting her when she was a teenager or something like that. And because the reporters had already done these kind of stories and they'd gotten so good at verifying Me Too stories, for lack of a better term, that's been the media shorthand, Yeah. Me Too stories, they found her out. They were like, you don't have anything corroborating this, like, why? And they eventually found out that she was working for a company that, like, 
did the false documentaries with Planned Parenthood and stuff like that. So Oh, really? Yeah, so they sniffed her out as a fraud. We need those stories to be on the on the front to say like people they are did. doing their yeah. investigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, they did. They published it right towards the top. It was like it was so funny reading like a what's supposed to be a neutral news story just dripping with a fuck you like we found you it was awesome but because the thing is 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 the whole there were other uh believable stories against Roy Moore so this person was trying to come in to get Washington Post to report on her story to make it seem like the other stories weren't believable And so they found her out because she was working for like a Republican media company. Right, like the Center for Medical Progress. (laughs) Something like that. Who did the fake Planned Parenthood? Yeah, yeah. So if it wasn't that, it was something like that, like some uh, company run by a guy that was kind of known for setting these types of traps. Um, And they, again, they they nailed her yeah because and so that that's why it makes me kind of sad when people say that they don't um want to believe survivors like there's the the journalists reporting on this at least at those levels are doing very thorough work work. yes and then because even the jesse smollett thing is it jesse 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 um he got immediately like within a week people are like this is weird you know and i just I feel like people don't give people's skepticism enough credit. Yeah. If a story seems believable, I, uh, what's wrong with at least listening? Right. You know? I... Well, it, and the fact that Jesse Smollett got sniffed out in a week also shows that people are doing their investigative, re- you know? Yeah, like they're talking to like unnamed police sources like, what's going on here? Right. Like, we don't want to wait for you guys to make a statement. Like, what's going on here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so you talked a little bit about Alabama. Uh, Mm. Bring us back. Um, Why? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, talk about uh, a little bit about your story about where all of this started. Like just who I am now versus like who I was then. Yeah, I, I guess the one of the, one of the question on this podcast really is like, what are you creating in the world, and how does that come from your experiences and story? Sure. And the different levels of consciousness you were at, you know. Yeah, um, I I grew up in South Mississippi. I should say that I grew up on the coast, which is a little more cosmopolitan than the rest of the state. That what you picture when you think of Mississippi, that's a little further north gotcha. from where I was from. But yeah, I grew up in a relatively conservative household, not super religious, had a lot of freedom. My parents were good parents. I had a good childhood. Um, I don't know if that's pertinent. <laughs> yeah, um, we're just chatting. And then I went to school at the University of South Alabama, and I lived and worked there for several years before I moved to Denver. But I have a kind of conflicted relationship with where I'm from. I think a lot of people probably wish their story was a little bit more interesting, right? And I just don't know that being from the South is who I want to think of myself as. Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, I mean, my suburb, I don't want people to know where I'm from. <laughs> where are you from, Danny? I'm from Strongs, Aloha. Oh. And I often feel shame when I say that. <laughs> oh. 
Yeah, I, I just like feel prepared to like answer questions like, oh, where's your accent? That's one I get a lot. Um, yeah. Oh, you know, from Mississippi and I'll nod and uh-huh. Yeah. Because like, everybody has 4,000 assumptions about that. Yes, absolutely. And that both annoys me, but I also understand it because the, the South does have a troubled history, <laughs> specifically with racism. But, you know... Mississippi has also given the world um, Oprah, William Faulkner, Muddy Waters. Two of those people are black and suffered because of it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I mean? This is my, like, I, I have a very deep appreciation for Southern history and culture. I grew up, I don't know what that was. I, <laughs> <laughs> I grew up about an hour, hour and a half east of New Orleans. Uh, New Orleans has always been one of my favorite cities. It's like most fun I've ever had is visiting New Orleans. Yeah, they have graveyard tours, like just as a normal, like you can walk into a voodoo shop and get dolls, grigri bags, like just like you're going to the corner market. It's like walking around in an old faded photograph. It's unbelievably steeped in culture and, and history and weirdness. But New Orleans itself, uh, has a really strong history of oppression and racism as well. The police department's always been just like wildly corrupt. I actually have a friend that I grew up with who's a cop in New Orleans and it's just, that's... Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So I keep uh, wanting to like have conversations with him about like all the things that are happening there. Um, The Confederate... Uh, monuments is a is a good example. The fight over the Confederate monuments in New Orleans. There are a lot of streets named after Confederate generals and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, it's a complicated place. Just yeah. the whole southern region to me is a very complicated place, particularly on the coast, on the Gulf Coast, like New Orleans, because those are port cities and those tend to attract a little bit more cosmopolitan population, right? commerce. Yeah, exactly. So theoretically, those places could be thought of as more progressive and they are by comparison, but it's still the South. It's still pretty conservative. Both of my parents claim to be Republicans. So that isn't who I am, though. I'm feministic and I lean pretty hard left. I have a fun challenge every election. I try really hard to find Republicans that I can vote for just so I'm keeping myself as close to the center as I can get. I don't always succeed, <laughs> but <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a hard game. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. a hard game to play. Yeah. Yeah. How does that history, that background, that, you know, how does that inform your writing? How does that inform your wanting to put on these things like unpacked in this journalistic it seems like you, from knowing you and from what you've said, it's like at your core, you have this like journalistic desire. Yeah. Um, I want to tell true stories. I want, I don't know. in like journalism school or my mind was more of like a journalism, like track in a communications department, but still like in college, like it was always like a strive for truth with a capital T. And then towards the end, they're like, there really is no such thing as a <laughs> yeah, truth. But try to get as close as you can. Right. right? Good luck. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I appreciated that lesson because I feel like there are different types of truths and that's what I'd like to get at. I don't really know how, I, I chose journalism because I was a creative into creative writing when I was growing up. I always wrote like poems and stuff like this, and I was like, "Oh, this is a way that I can write and still make money." Because that was before the general de- decay of journalism or mm. print journalism was widely accepted. Yeah, you know, people were still theoretically getting up to like sixty, seventy, eighty k a year editor jobs at local newspapers, and so. It, but I guess. Uh, 
I don't know, like after college, I kind of fell in love with the, with just that role in society, just being somebody who seeks out truth, but in a way that still like respects humanity that, you know, I, I, um, I don't know. The question is how does my Southern roots and my conflicted relationship with those roots inform my journalistic kind of approach? Yeah. If it, if it does, you uh, know, there's, it, it doesn't have to be forced into it either. Yeah, retrospectively, it kind of does. Um, just maybe a recognition that, um, the way things are in reality are almost always nuanced and complicated. Yeah. And I think, um, getting people to accept that and realize that makes it easier to have conversations that are actually impactful and change people's minds. And, um, you know, I have become very familiar with what confirmation bias is and how it makes change difficult. Yeah. People hear something that affirms their worldview and they take it in. They hear something that doesn't affirm their worldview and they let go of it. Almost, it actually almost makes them re-entrench in their, in their views. So yeah, I guess just maybe just recognizing that things can be complicated and it's okay to leave it that, that you don't, that maybe not everything is fixable, but it's yeah. good to understand it. Like I can't change the fact that the South is uh, considered racist. I can't, I can't change that past. I can't change the perception people have of it. I can't change the judgments people make about me the minute they hear where I'm from. Yeah. But I can talk to them about it. (laughs) I can have a conversation with them to maybe help them understand who I am. One example of that I like to use is presidential elections. 60% of Mississippi went for Trump. My mom was not one of them, though. She's a Republican, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's just kind of interesting to live in gray areas. I, I think maybe it's just a, a long, slow-burning comfort with uh, ambiguity and knowing it's important to understand and trying to get other people to accept that fact. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to talk about ambiguity. Uh, I think... I also come from a pretty conservative family and I come from a family who often I felt like we, we weren't able to have difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of our conversations came out through comedy. Like we Mm -hmm. like made jokes at each other's expenses as a way of like telling each other truth. And it worked to an extent, but it never got to the core issues. Right. Right. Do you have an example? Uh, what's a good example of this? I think it's like if we're sitting at the dinner table and my sister, Nikki, who tends to be more controlling out of the bunch of us and it's me and my mom and Susie and my dad. And we make a joke about, her being too controlling or something over the kids. I don't, this might've never even happened, Mm. but instead of ever having conversations about, you know, my mom's addiction or uh, different, like we all have anxiety and depression for sure. And instead of having those really candid conversations where we could talk about that, we coped through like laughing and joking. And I sincerely appreciate that. But that also like that also drove me 
to want to do things like this, where we have conversations that get directly at the roots, you know, cause I was so hungry for it. And I, I, I guess I'm wondering if, if that, if you ever had that hunger, if you ever had those experiences growing up where you're like, where's the ambiguity? Where's the nuance? Why are we so black and white right now? Or sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, it's, it's kind of funny. You're talking about uh, comedy. We, there's a strong passive aggressive gene in, in my family on both sides. So there's, you know, and my dad is like the kind of person that never said he was sorry or didn't like to admit he was wrong. My, <laughs> my favorite, uh, I say my favorite, one of my favorite little factoids about him is uh, the fact that he used, they used to all play Trivial Pursuit with neighbors or friends or whatever that would come to town when him and my mom were together. Uh, back in the 80s or whatever, whenever they were adults without kids. <laughs> right. Uh, my dad would go to, into the bathroom with the cards <laughs> <laughs> and memorize them. Oh, my God. Yeah. And uh, I confronted him with that story because, of course, it was my mom that told me that, not him. I confronted him with that story sometime in the last five to ten years. Like, I was an adult, but not... It wasn't incredibly recently. And I said, you know, that's cheating. (laughs) He was like, and his response was, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) With a shitting grin and no interest in elaborating further. (laughs) Just like a knowing, like I will communicate that I know this, Mm -hmm. but I will not admit it. This is the best you're going to get. Move on. Back um, off from my trivial pursuit champion. Right, right. And I don't know, maybe that idea of my dad being kind of protective of his ego is the same thing to me as a discomfort with ambiguity. He doesn't yeah. like to deal with his flaws, right? Right, who he does? To, yeah, right. No, exactly, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard, but it's so worthwhile to talk about. And I found that... So a good example of how that that idea of growing up kind of wanting to address ambiguity and and talk about gray areas and getting comfortable in gray areas and how that intersects with kind of how I developed my identity as a journalist that I still consider a core part of who I am. Totally. That's how you introduce yourself to Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. When I, I used to get uh, compliments or maybe not compliments. I had someone I was interviewing early on, like during my first job and it was my first kind of, you know, it was a kind of controversial story of my first not fluff piece. It was about, you know, road work and how they were funding it. And I had to ask these tough questions. So I went into the city manager's office and I said, hi, you know, and I, and I asked the questions in a way that kind of hinted at, oh, I'm doing my job, but I'm asking with full respect and I'm not trying to corner you or trap you. I just need to ask this question and I need you to answer it to the best of your ability. And this guy stopped me. He goes, can I ask you a question? Because I was 22 at the time, 23. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah. He goes, are you nervous or do you feel like insecure at all right now? I said, well, sure. Yeah. This is the first time I've had kind of a more confrontational situation. questions to ask than in the past. He said, well, I just wanted you to know that you're doing a good job. You're kind of disarming and, and I I don't feel like you're pressuring me to answer. I just feel like you 
He's like, yeah, he, I don't. I think he was trying to like give me a compliment without seeming like a creepy old dude. But he told me that I was dis- he knew he wasn't. He was a very respectful gentleman. But he told me that I was disarming. And from that moment on, it was a weird moment for me because this so rarely happens where I realized that something about me is good mm. and I can use it to further conversations. So from that point on, I would try to make sure that I came to tough interviews with that position. I am doing my job. I recognize that you are a human being and I am a human being and we need to have a conversation that are going to have moments that either one of us doesn't like or neither of us like. Yeah. But we're in this together, right? I understand you. I am not judging you. I would go out of my way to express uh, empathy in some way. And it worked. People wanted to talk about things. Once they kind of got going, a lot of times they would maybe be more candid than they would in talking to a journalist. And I I don't want to say that I took advantage of that or I manipulated anyone because I don't think that I did, but it was just an acute awareness that being genuine and, and talking to somebody like they're human was a, an effective way to get around confirmation bias. I've had conversations with family members about race um, where my views are very different and I used to be very combative. When I was younger, that's racist. You can't say that. Right. Um, Fight. Right. And uh, I've kind of come to realize that my role as a white person with white family who sometimes say problematic things is to engage them in a way that shows that I love them because that those are my family members. I don't expect, you know someone that they insult to come with the same level of empathy and love, but that's not their role. My role is to talk to my people um, in a way that hopefully gets them to open up, to get around their confirmation bias and their in their uh, implicit biases in their head. Interesting. Yeah. So in a, in a community, because uh-huh. we're surrounded by a stand-up and fight mentality right now. In like progressive communities? I, I would say so. In my experience, there's a lot. I mean, gen, like in the general, culturally speaking right now, we're in kind of a stand up and fight. Yeah, actually on both sides, I would say that because there's kind of the populist wave that got Donald Trump elected. Oh, and totally. Yeah. Then you have activists that are kind of it, the rhetoric has seemed much more black and white to yes. me lately. Yeah. We're, you know. And so what would you, what would you say to, what would you say to those folks who believe that the only way to change, to change is uh, black and white, stand up and fight? Oh, I would ask them to tell me why. Mm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That all, I mean, that already set somebody back right away. Yeah. I, I think uh, asking questions and trying to understand first before you go in and go, this is why you're wrong will at least get them to listen to you if you pay them the same courtesy of listening to them. There's a better chance that they will do the same for you. If you want a platform, give somebody else a platform too. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, we're all humans. And I... I believe what I believe, right? I believe racism is wrong. I believe that I have biases that I myself need to be aware of and, and get over. I think that... Teachers, the teacher strike in Denver, I thought was a great thing. I honestly did because it was effective. Yeah, it worked. But I, uh, I so I, I do think that there is a place for that direct, this, this is the way it is. Well, the teacher strike, too, had a very clear leverage point, mm-hmm. too. Pay. 
pay Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to do this job anymore Yeah, until this, like there was very clear, like we're going to stand up and fight because we have tools Mm -hmm. versus, uh, like shame and shame would be the tool I would say. Mm, Uh, Yeah. A powerful one too. It's a powerful tool. But does it does it move us forward? Um, I think in the teacher strike, maybe shame was a a powerful tool, right? It the superintendent and the school district didn't want to sit there with egg on their face and decided, okay, we need to put an end to this. We're not looking good, so yeah, here's your pay. It'll take effect at this date. Please come back and stop tell the kids to stop posting things on social media so everybody knows what's happening yeah, while was, you're gone yeah that was great we were at that board meeting and hearing <laughs> that's what i'm talking about <laughs> here our friend jj is a teacher and told us that they think the strike worked so fast because uh kids were posting on social media showing showing our city that they weren't learning whereas the admin were trying to convince parents that oh no even without teachers we still have a plan and kids are still learning Mm -hmm. but I wouldn't call that shame that seems just exposing truth right right I I guess I just meant there's a time when you shouldn't worry about if your actions will make someone feel shame oh I see what you're saying like I I think that the district probably should have maybe been ashamed of some of the things that happened and made the appropriate changes so I'm just saying that as a general matter I I think that there are places for the direct drawing lines in the sand approach. Totally. But on a person to person level, I think that that changes. Yeah. And um, I think that's what I'm trying to get at too. Right. When I'm talking to my dad about race, I'm going to talk to him in a much softer, gentler way than I might with, um, if I were to like get up and at a rally and give a speech, which I wouldn't, but like, or it's a even different, right yeah. now where we have, yeah, we're very like-minded. So it's easy to, right. I can, I can say to you, like racism is wrong. And like people saying these things, like I'm being very general, but I, just because I feel like everybody has good examples of what racism looks like. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not going to throw all that in his face as much as someone else who encountered, I'm using my dad as an example. I'm not, I, I, I <laughs> sorry if you're listening to this dad. Um, yeah, let's not send it to your dad. <laughs> no, no, no. I won't. Yeah. Uh, well, it's just like anybody in my family, like, and, it, and I'm saying like race, like it's more nuanced kind of things. Not like he's not a ranting, raving racist person at well, all. And like I think that's where racism exists. Exactly. Yeah. Mostly. And that's what I'm talking about yeah. is I'm not going to be effective if I throw a bunch of crap like that in someone I love's face. Right. Right. In someone's face that I love. I don't know the right grammatical construction of that. sentence, yeah, yeah, yeah. But It's not my job to make him feel shame. It's my job to see if he'll listen to me or listen to someone else. It's my job to peel back the kind of hard exterior that we build up, the confirmation bias, calcified shell that we all carry around with oh, us about man. some things. Mine's deeply ingrained. <laughs> about what do, what do you have your confirmation biases about? Uh, what do I have my confirmation biases about? It's uh, It's like 
I think this is really prevalent in the Trump era. Mm. There's nothing Trump does that I think is good often. And I have to like, I have to like take that back for myself and be like, why do I think that? Mm -hmm. Like that can't be true, you know? And when my dad tells me all these positive things Trump is doing, it takes every fiber of my being to sit there and listen (laughs) and be like, maybe you're right. But it's like in no other example in I ever have ever heard is there one person who is wrong about everything, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so and so it's impossible for Trump to not be doing anything good for this country. Like I I flat out believe that. And it and I think people probably are cringing when they hear that. A little bit over here as well, but but I agree with you at the same time. Right. But I feel the same way. But it's like when I he when I when I listen to late night with Seth Meyers, when I put on like my typical like you know Stephen Colbert I realize why I think that because everything is spun negatively Mm -hmm. and everything spun negatively on the liberal side to Trump just as Obama was the antichrist to the Republicans before and so we're in a really kind of messed up position where I'm in like we're I'm in a position where if I say things like, oh, Trump might be doing some good for our country. Not that I even can label those positive examples right now. (laughs) (laughs) You're so ingrained. I am so ingrained. (laughs) But if I were to say that to my friends in this community, there would be immediately immediate backlash and some questioning of my character Mm -hmm. in some way. And so. I get why we're so divided. I get why it's so, why there's so much shame put on each side because I think what's at stake too is your own community. I think what's at stake is your relationships mm. with the people you love. Yeah. And I, I don't want to lose, like, I love this community. I don't want to lose people like in my core mm. because of something that they might disagree with, you know? So, right. So how do we have those conversations without alienating everybody? I really have to believe that that's possible. It's difficult, but I do honestly, truly with all my heart and my deepest wish (laughs) is that uh, that is possible. It's funny. We have to like believe in this idea, like Santa Claus or something. Like when is the tooth fairy going to leave a collection of productive conversations under my pillow? You know, (laughs) I, Uh, tooth fairy come to us tonight. Right, right, right. <laughs> Sprinkle some of your dust on my my community and peers and family and let us move forward in these ways. It, I was reading a piece from a Judith Butler book I just got, and it was talking about right after the Iraq war. And they're like, she talks about how there's an, a sentiment of anti-intellectualism and for everybody to support the war even even liberals at the yeah. time mm-hmm. and how if you don't support the war you're an other and like we've we've become so censored and it was so interesting this is like 2003 to apply it now on the reverse side of the liberal side who is often censoring everything we say yeah and claiming an intellectual property without being intellectual about what they're saying. When you say intellectual property, you don't mean or, like... No, no, I, yeah, like, that was just bad, bad speech. Okay, like, <laughs> Claiming intellectualism... Gotcha, yeah, okay. ...when yeah. we're not, like, generally, I don't think liberals are being intellectual right now. Oh, yeah, or even claiming the moral high ground. Right. Um, along with that, 
you know, kind of ivory tower intellectualism, because that's always been the criticism of the the left, right? The yeah. elite. The you liberal know. elites. Mm-hmm. My dad yeah. says it to me all the time. Yeah, which is so interesting because the Clintons were not viewed that way when he was first elected. They were looked at as kind of like bumpkins from Arkansas. <laughs> it's so interesting, that right? That played a saxophone. That was mm-hmm. this big like thing. Like, yeah. People we, thought he was cool. Yeah. I mean, that was an endearing aspect of yeah, Clinton, among smart. other very not endearing things about him. But, right. But that's an interesting conversation maybe for later about reframing how we look at Clinton as left-leaning people. But Yeah. Interesting thing you said earlier. I kind of want to jump into like some personal real quick. Um, you mentioned... <laughs> you. Well, I, I don't think you'll think this is where it's going. I think I'll okay. catch you off guard. You mentioned you were interviewing this guy and he said... He said oh, you're very disarming. Mm -hmm. And so you had this mirror effect where this person showed you a part of yourself and that led you, that maybe not led you, but it it put a little fuel to your journalistic journey. Oh yeah, it was a very much a defining moment in who I was shaping myself to be in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm curious of how you've gotten to this place of, you know, hosting unpacked and talking about these issues and like getting to this nuanced perspective and what that journey was like from that moment of 22 till now, you know, that's actually, it's kind of a a long road. Like I can tell you just like everything that I've been through since then, because it got like worse and then now it's been better, but yeah, feel free. We got some time. (laughs) Can I ask you just to define your question just to make sure I answer it and don't meander too much. (laughs) Yeah, I would say just talk about that journey from that moment until now. Sure. Um, and how it developed and the challenges you had to overcome and to be in a place where you're creating what you're creating. Sure, yeah. I think that moment, it's, it's hard to know what was exactly going in my head at that particular moment, but it definitely marinated, I think, to kind of reveal itself as some potent truth about myself mm-hmm. that I can provide safe spaces. I not always. I'm someone who wears my heart on my sleeve quite a bit. I think it's easy to tell how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking. 100%. Yeah. Thanks <laughs> thanks for confirming. Yeah. But I when I'm able to command my own presence, that is what I like most about myself is my ability to create a safe space Mm. to let someone be without feeling too judged. That was it. And that became important just as a journalist, because you have to talk to people. And if they, the less someone feels judged, the more they will talk to you. It's just kind of a universal truth. Right. So I guess you're asking how that moment kind of developed into who I am now. Yeah. How did, I mean, what happened after that? What were the journey? Sure. What was the journey like? So I got married around that time. And, you know, at the time, I I feel like everybody does some level of pretending to fit into their surroundings. Totally. You know, yeah. you're a different person around your family than you are around me. Mm-hmm. I did that for a really long time to make a relationship work. I got married. I don't want to say his name because, you know. Oh, yeah. No, uh, it's about you. Yeah. <laughs> but... It ended up just being a really controlling, kind of manipulative thing, especially towards the end. But I think I spent a lot of time kind of bending 
contorting uh, in some instances. And that's not to say that I couldn't be myself in a lot of ways. I, I think my ex did know me in some ways that other people don't on a true level. And I think he loved me in his own way, but I just don't think that he was able to set aside his own controlling needs to do that as fully as someone might be able to. If there was something that he liked about me, he would nourish it, you know, and, and feed it and, and mm. encourage it. If there was something he didn't, it's very subtle, kind of like, well, don't you think this is better? Or, you know, don't you think? And then, but then like, as time went on, it became more, it became worse. It was, you know, I want you to do this certain sexual thing and I don't want to do it because it makes me uncomfortable. I don't feel good. And his response would be, well, I wish that the fact that I like it would be enough. And it would become that Ooh, yeah, yeah, hard, really hard. That um, subtle manipulation. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that inspires guilt. Yeah, it did. It did. And so that's kind of what our relationship became towards the end as I was kind of growing apart from the relationship and becoming someone else. Like I used to be a big sports fan, for example, and that was one thing that we really had in common. And then big saints fan. I still kind of am in some, somewhere deep down. Really interesting. I don't think we've connected over our previous sports routes. No. We ha- oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I have a deep history with sports. Interesting. Yeah. The, yeah. I, I've I almost outgrown that a little bit, you know? Yeah, no, I feel it. Uh, the, the stuff with the NFL has just been really hard to swallow the, um, you know, the Ray Rice thing where, you know, he punches his fiance in an elevator. Well, did he like choke her too? Yeah. Something? I don't know. I don't remember. all yeah. the details. I just know that there are, there were violent men that were not facing consequences for their violent behavior. Well, you heard about Kareem hunt too, right? No. See, I, I'm, I've unplugged from it almost completely. He just had a domestic violence thing <sighs> caught on camera oh My God, and where he like kicked the woman and like pushed her over and, uh, got cut from the chiefs last year. Yeah. And my team, the Cleveland Browns just picked him up. So, Cause the Browns are always terrible and they, always... hey, well, they're good now. I know, I'm they're sorry. Good. They are. See, that's how yeah. long it's been. Since yeah, right. <laughs> I paid attention. Anyways, let's get back to your story. Yeah. No, <laughs> good. no, no. Yeah. Um, the whole, so that, that's just like an example, right? Where it was, I think he really loved that I was a woman who knew a lot about and was super into sports. The and cool I, girl trope. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. And I might have like leaned into that a little harder than I otherwise would have, but I did enjoy it. I liked yelling at games. I enjoyed knowing things about a game that gave me some kind of social collateral, you know, yeah. to, I was a cool girl. I, you know, all the, all the guys in the group liked me because I knew all this stuff about sports or I was at least interested. So I started to really not be able to stomach it, especially the NFL. The NCAA is another just horrific example of exploitation of, of people from poor communities. It was difficult to, I was always a sports editor of my college Mm -hmm. newspaper when we first got our NCAA team. And after that fact, like it became kind of, you know, obvious that the NCAA is a very troubled organization and then the NFL even more so, I think. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the whole thing with Colin Kaepernick, like that was my breaking point. So you're going to give a guy two games suspension for beating the fuck out of his significant other. Right. And you're going to basically blacklist a guy for a peaceful sideline protest. Right. Well stated. Fuck that. Just fuck it, right? Yeah, like, and yeah. I just, 
and the Colin Kaepernick stuff happened after I split with my ex, but I was already starting to drift like where he was the kind of guy that wanted to watch every game like like Friday to Sunday or Monday was game watch people time. do that yeah i know he was one of them <laughs> yeah. and it was really hard to take for a while like for a while it's like i can do my own thing i could read but he would be insistent like he always like i think it became clear to me then that there were certain expectations of my attention that he had hey want to watch training camp with me a day after i said i really wanted to watch less uh, NFL games right you know and then I would say no I can sit here and read and be in the same room with you and you can watch and he didn't like that or he would pause and go hey 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 watch this you know and like rewind it and make me consume what he wanted me to consume essentially and he would do it in this way that was kind of like oh, I want you to see this kind of but when I look back on it it was a uh, I don't think that he liked that I was becoming less interested in something that he thought we had a big connection over right and instead of like, he might be losing you yeah yeah or not even that just like he was comfortable I don't even thought think he thought I don't think he was that self-aware that he was losing me. I think that oh. he was just comfortable and he liked that aspect of our relationship. And so maybe losing that aspect like made him want to correct it back to the way it was right. instead of accepting that people change and maybe trying to figure out more meaningful ways to connect to me. He yeah. wanted to make me be something that I wasn't anymore. Do you think that uh, goes back to your wanting to create a safe space for people yeah i do because this is the long narrative arc that gets back to your original question of that moment of that guy telling me that i was disarming and how that informed my approach to my my job as a journalist yeah and then going through these kind of very personal things i you know i know also like i was sexually assaulted in college i like i said there was some there were some moments in my marriage that Uh, I think are pretty clear to me were abusive and and coercive and not, not the perfect picture of consent, you know, since we're talking about that. And so these kind of shifting narratives in my life, like I was a wife and a kind of typical not typical, but I had like this identity as a cool girl who likes sports. I, you know, I had these other pieces and then like, as I was growing and trying to like shift away, like I've always been kind of a a weird person. (laughs) Like, you know, like I, I've always been able to fit into most social situations again, useful as a journalist, but Mm -hmm. I've always been a little weird and a little like, uh, I like to think, I, I think I have some depth, you know, but I would, I don't always share that, um, depending on where I'm at. And I think that I increasingly got tired of kind of wearing these labels that I wanted to be myself. Like, it's like, okay, we've been together for seven years now. Surely you can accept that I don't want to watch football all weekend. I will watch my Saints games and I will watch your Niners games because he was a Niners fan. Mm -hmm. I guess he still is a Niners fan. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I really wouldn't know. But... Like, it was like, surely you can just like, I got to a point where I wanted to kind of almost force him to accept who I was becoming. And then that's when I decided to leave was, and even leaving was like kind of catered towards his comfort. Like I could have left right away, but I prolonged it to try to make him feel more comfortable and try to make him hurt less, I guess. And that was, that got to be something I got tired of, of wearing the accommodator. Yeah. I got tired of a lot of things. And then I kept going back to this one aspect about myself that I 
I disarm, I defuse, or I try to. I'm not in situations where I'm angry myself. I'm not very good at those things in those moments, yeah. but I try to approach people with understanding and an open, everything, open mind, open face, open heart, you know, all yeah. those things. And going back to that has been grounding in what has felt like a really difficult search for who I am, you know? Mm. And so to answer your question, how that like, it both did, yes, it was a useful thing. It informed my journalistic approach. It made it easier to talk to people, but it also was something that I could go back to when I was suffering, when I didn't know who I was. I could be someone who people could talk to or yeah. listen to or feel okay around. In the past few years after the divorce, I actually had moved away from that a little bit just in my anger and my hurt and my, you know, dealing with pain is a difficult thing. And, mm. and, but that even gave me something that I wanted to go back to, you know, like that's the person that I want to be. I want to be the safe space. I want to be someone that people want to talk to and feel right. safe around. So in that way, it was also grounding that when I started moving away from that in my trauma, being closed, being judgmental of being, prickly you know like developing my little calcified shell yeah that we were talking about earlier it gave me something to hold on to like that's a piece of my identity i don't want to lose so here are the things that i need to change to get back to that here are the things that i need to stop doing to myself here are the ways i need to stop suffering here are the difficult conversations i do need to have to get back to a place of openness yeah being being an open heart and a safe space and in that through line of like having that as like a grounding anchoring point, did you realize more dimensions of yourself like through that process? Hmm. Like through that lens of being an open well, person? It sounds like this has been like a source of like um, grounding as we've said a few times, this aspect of yourself, but also in like leaving and setting your boundaries and, hmm. and becoming like becoming who you want to be. Sure. Because there's always dichotomy, right? Right. I think that that's where the tension was like moving away from being an open person was also like a, a necessity of learning that my own energy and time and boundaries are worth respect. Yeah. And so that's kind of been the layers, I guess. I, yeah. It's also been, about threading the needle, right? Like I do want to be a safe space and an open person, but I also want to be someone that is respected. I want, you know, you don't want to be walked on. No, no, no. I don't want to be walked on. I don't want guys to assume that they can like, if I like the most like just dumb examples, like the whole, like guys telling girls to smile, like, Hey, why do you look so sad? Put it. You look so pretty when you smile. It's like, yeah. I hate that. I really do. But right. I'll smile sometimes just to like move on with my day. Because I don't think that that guy is trying to be a shitty person. And maybe someone else can tell him why telling girls to smile is kind of problematic. Right. But sometimes I don't feel like fucking smiling. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah. want to tell him, like, look, I'm fine. I was actually better before you said something to right. me. Right. <laughs> you're, not, you're not helping. Right. So that's kind of been my my journey so far is finding the right. It's, it's finding balance and moderation in between self-protection in a healthy way like yeah. good boundaries not accommodating to the point of self-sacrifice especially when it's not necessary right but again just coming back to being a safe space you know it's it's interesting that you say that because 
I think my perception of you and our partnership and like working on these events is that you have this ability to create the safe space Mm -hmm. and you have this a very clear strong vision and uncompromising vision in some cases. Oh, I hate, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I mean, this is just my projection. I could be completely wrong, mm. but I see it as like a form that also plays into this journalistic thing where you're, I mean, we're taking on consent mm-hmm. in this very vulnerable format. And I think th- that has to do with your, your your vision and your courage and your strength to be like this is what i want to do and i'm going to do this mm-hmm. and you know what i mean oh do you mean like just like not willing to compromise on certain aspects when you say like yeah like you have like i think uncompromising can look be looked at negatively or it can be seen as like there there are, here are these lines in the sand that i'm you're not stepping over right right you know like one of them is like they have to be true stories i've had a few people ask about like right reading a fiction piece and i'm like maybe that could work in a context but here we need true right. stories they have to be personal they have to be yours yeah so i guess i can see what you mean there and even putting on the event in mm-hmm. its own sense requires that kind of aggressive like courage mm. you know to even even throw this thing so it it seems like that plays into your your pursuits as well in a really like cool way well thank you yeah, yeah. i could see that i yeah, I, the last few years have been, part of that's been just realizing certain truths, right? We were talking earlier about, you know, being gentle and soft with people we love when we're talking about difficult things. But there are times, at least maybe like when I'm talking, maybe when we're talking about consent generally, there's room for nuance and and an open mind and, and a little bit of back and forth and conversation about it. But when we're talking about like things that happen to me specifically, mm-hmm. there might be a little less ambiguity, right. you know? Yeah. <laughs> we're not leaving this up. For right, you. right, right. Well, cause like, for example, I was, I, I mentioned, and this is like a really hard thing to talk about. I've just now started kind of talking about this particular trauma, but there was at least once in my marriage, um, that you could probably classify it as, sexual assault or rape he said no and he continued anyway i didn't fight i didn't act like a, like i might have even like acted like i enjoyed it at some point to move it along quicker mm-hmm. and you could classify it as a just a, oh she's tired like she didn't want but i said no and he right. still persisted anyway and i feel like in the past like i've been guilty of going well you know like i didn't fight like I just said and I didn't like mm-hmm. say no a lot and I didn't justify it yeah yeah I could I could try to dance around calling it what it is but at this point I'm like no it was like asking me to do some things actually that I don't want to do not getting irritated and cajoling persisting after I've said no especially when I've had too much to drink I that's not that's not something that I need to apply gray area to. That's right. not something I that's or very clear. Right. That's not something I need to pull into the gray area with me where I like to live. You know, I love nuance and context and ambiguity. I love talking about it. But in that case, I'm like, no, I need to I need to for myself and maybe for other people say this was wrong. This was why it was wrong. And I'm going to tell you that until you accept it. Yeah. And so in that way, um, I think that being uncompromising about certain truths is a good thing. 
Yeah. I, I certainly appreciate this conversation too. going like we've, we've covered things. We've almost contradicted ourselves in some ways, which (laughs) cause we're human. Yeah. Which is good. (laughs) And I, you know, these are the kind of conversations we need to have where Mm -hmm. we're recognizing our own, our own contradictions and our, the subtleties and you know, all that good stuff. For sure. Yeah. So what's next? That is a great question. Yeah. What are, um, what are you, what's the vision? I feel like you're in this like brand new incubator phase of creativity for yourself. I am. Yeah. Like I said earlier, I have been doing a lot of writing cause like there was the divorce, but there's also like a really tough career transition in there. And accepting that certain things were out of my control. I didn't get to like pick where I ended up as much as I would have liked to. And the place that I left was a very like toxic place that really aggravated the traumas that I was already going through. Mm -hmm. So this like last year or two of writing has been, I think a lead up to where I'm at now, which is at the precipice of a transition. I just don't know what that transition is. I know I've toyed with the idea of going back to school. I've toyed with, you know, getting published which I mean I'm pursuing all those things anyway but as far as like where to focus what are your dreams what are my dreams yeah hopes and dreams no I I was just about to say that I I think I've just realized that I want to do stuff like unpacked and what you're doing is super intriguing to me as well with soul stories Sorry, there was a fly I was trying to catch that they can't see. Well, on the <laughs> they could see it on the video. That's true. <laughs> Hopefully you caught uh, it. Yeah, I didn't. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I think that what's next is focusing on the marriage of all those things, for lack of a better term, given my previous story about marriage. Um <laughs> The marriage of the, yeah, writing, the, of, uh, of, yeah, of publishing. Cre- yeah, of creative writing. Like, Because I am a writer at my core. Mm-hmm. I have a journalistic style that I like. It's very observational. It's been turned inward. I'm looking forward to kind of turning outward, I think, is, is what's next. It's applying these things about myself uh, and focusing my lens to what's going on around me and beyond that instead of just what's going on in my own head. Yeah, I think that's an important part in especially the healing journey Mm -hmm. is like there has to be a time period where it's just you and yourself and working through those things to move to a place where we can benefit others. Yeah. Yeah. And, and both. Right. I I think that there's, it's always good to like write about what you're thinking and feeling Mm as that's valid as a writer. I, what else can you write so acutely about or so eloquently about than what is going on in your own body and your own head? Yeah. Um, (laughs) <laughs> but as a journalist, I, I recognize the value in synthesizing what's going on around you, um, what's going on in the world, trying to define things, social processes, trying to make sense of this fucking crazy yeah, yeah, ass yeah, world. Too. Well, because that's what a journalist is, right? It's it's synthesizing information and presenting it to a public. So I think that taking that, taking creative writing and, and all the healing and my own experiences and kind of mixing those in together, because I am someone who survived sexual assault, so I care about sexual assault prevention. But here are all these other people that can speak on it, that have things to say that I can't say or won't say or don't have the experience to say. Right. One perspective is one perspective. Yes. And I think that that is where I'm at now is recognizing that my perspective is valid, but also wanting to get back to living in other people's perspectives. Yeah. Get out of your own head for a moment. Mm -hmm. 
And that head can be a... It's chaos. <laughs> like the universe, it's yeah. all chaos. It's all chaos. <laughs> Man, if Brett Randell's listening, he will love that you said that. Really? He loves the word chaos. I do. It's a good word. <laughs> right. it just, it's so descriptive of everything. Oh, cool. Well, uh, thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for being honest and courageous and talking about everything under the sun under this uh, on this podcast um <laughs> i appreciate it yeah same thanks for uh providing the space to do so sweet thank you for taking the time to listen to the soul stories podcast having these conversations is super important to me as a person and the backbone behind why we do everything at soul stories i would be extremely grateful if you were to leave a review at itunes and share this episode with someone you care about. It helps us build the movement. Until next time, this is Danny signing off.